Hello and welcome. I'm Alexi Lalas and this is the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. Uh, This week, we'll be talking about MLS coming down to the wire and all sorts of craziness that's going on over there. We'll have our European roundup. We'll talk VAR as usual. Zlatan, uh, potentially in that conversation of the greatest ever. Burhalter, Greg Burhalter, that is, with the U.S. men's national team. NWSL, uh, some Sofia Coppola uh, talk, and so much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light. David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday, October 26th in the year 2020? I'm doing well, particularly after a very impressive start to the season for the Michigan Wolverines. Your Wolverines of Michigan up there uh, in, in God's country, if you will, they, they started off the, uh, the Big Ten. It, uh, the Big Ten kind of came back, right? This is happening. Nine-game series, uh, and, and then after that, they decide who the uh, best team in the Big Ten. And when I say 10, it's not actually 10, right? Correct. Uh, how did uh, your Wolverines do? Uh, we thumped Minnesota, 49-24. And Alexi, I don't like to overreact uh, to one game. But we have an absolute star at the quarterback position, a kid by the name of Joe Milton, who I think is going to provide me with incredible amounts of joy on Saturdays over the next couple of years. He is a stud. I don't, I've never heard of him. Uh, I, I trust you and take your, take your word for it. But I will say this. Uh, when we talk about great and, and when we talk, let me, let's, let's be honest, when we talk about great college football, the first thing that comes to mind for you and probably all of our listeners and viewers is, is Rutgers football. Uh, Rutgers is back, baby. Okay, uh, we are we are back with a vengeance, and we are kicking butt, taking names. Uh, so don't sleep on my Rutgers Scarlet Knights when it comes to college football uh, out there. They're doing really well. So yes, college football has been back, but in the form of Big Ten, it is back. So for you and my wife, who's a big uh, Ohio State fan, and everybody else out there, and Stu, Stu Holden and the you know, whole Holden family are big Ohio State fans. Everybody is, is happy that they at least get to see the actual game. We know that the, uh, the environments aren't yet back the way that uh, we want it. My friend, what have, you, what have you watched this week, other than uh, your Michigan Wolverines, which are evidently going to win the Super Bowl? Not the Super Bowl. What, the, what do you call the thing in college? Uh, the, the, the big one, the, the four, uh, right? The playoffs? I don't know. Well, uh, you know, Alex Dow just uh, messaged us saying Stu Holden is a Clemson fan. And it, it is true. Uh, Stu is uh, kind of torn there. I know his family is Ohio State Buckeyes, but he, he's a Clemson guy. So, And Ohio State and Clemson have actually met in some big games in recent years. So it's been little bit difficult for him uh, okay i i'm sorry Stu, if you're listening your wife is an ohio state fan which makes you an ohio <laughs> state fan for most of the time anyway let's be honest okay and you have no problem eating the chips drinking the beer partaking in all of the hospitality that all of your ohio state friends have given you and you know what i'm talking about out there Stu holden all right so okay, uh, I, I I stand corrected, but let's be honest. That that Holden household, we know who runs that Holden household, and we know that it's Ohio State. Uh, what did you do, Mossy? What did you do? Anything interesting? Uh, not much on the television front. I did watch finally the Barcelona documentary that take the ball, pass the ball. But I'm going to save that for the Ask Alexi because believe it or not, it actually ties into one of the Ask Alexi questions today. But uh, beyond that, wow. uh, not much on the television front for me this week. Uh, what did I have on the television front? I, I, I mentioned in the open, uh, Sofia Coppola, uh, one of the, I don't know, I mean, rising, and, and I don't think she's great, and it's hard when your father's uh, Francis Ford Coppola, but 
certainly a uh, a gifted filmmaker out there. She's got a new one on the uh, the Apple uh, Apple. What do you call it? The Apple uh, Apple Plus or whatever. Uh, I have it, but uh, she's got a new movie out called On the Rocks, which stars Bill Murray and Rashida Jones. It is billed as a comedy. Uh, I watched it over the weekend. It, it's it's okay. It's not great. The comic moments in it are few and far between. For And I guess it's just not in-your-face comedy, which is kind of what she does. And there's a whole lot more, you know, the um, the aesthetic of it is done with an obvious eye to being not arty because that's that's gives a negative connotation but the way that it is shot i think is part of the appeal for a lot of people i didn't find it that interesting a story and i certainly didn't find it from a from a comedic standpoint that it gave me enough especially when you have two great actors uh like that so it's very it's very understated i i still will recommend it i think it's uh it's an interesting and it's not a waste of time type of movie but expected i expected a little bit of more that was my uh my viewing anything that uh anything that you saw or read or listened to out there well i have borat on the uh the queue here ready to go so i think maybe maybe tonight i'll i'll, I'll check that out oh you haven't, I haven't watched, watched it, it you haven't watched borat I haven't either. I tell you what, we'll we'll both watch it this week, and we will uh, promise our listeners and viewers that they will get our review of the uh, of the second Borat. I don't know what it's called. I know it's got a really long name, but uh, the second Borat uh, movie that is uh, that is out right now, and I think it's it's on Amazon Prime, right? So it's it's a it's widely distributed in in what distribution is in 2020 uh, out there. So a lot of people can certainly. Uh, Watch that. All right, Mossy, uh, anything else before we uh, get this uh, party started and light this candle? That's it. All right, uh, let's do it. Uh, we're going to dive right in to the, uh, the craziness that's happening over in Europe and as it relates to a lot of American players. You know, there, I don't think that there has been a time, Mossy, correct me if I'm wrong, in the past where there has been more optimism uh, and more curiosity as to what is happening when it comes to American players. And each and every week and or weekend we are we, we are seemingly planning our viewing habits around you know these multiple opportunities to see american players and as we've said many many times over the last couple of weeks at some really really big uh, big clubs and this week did not disappoint there were uh, there were certainly plenty of them to sink our teeth into into some people like alex Dowd are going to watch chelsea no matter what there are other people that are fans of the player first, and will watch Chelsea either begrudgingly if they if they follow another English team, or just watch Chelsea because someone like Christian Pulisic is playing there, and now that he's healthy, uh, starting there, and that's that's okay. That's that's what this American soccer fanaticism uh, and belief and growth is all about: is is seeing some of these things and taking pride and being curious as to how ultimately these players, when they are playing at these big clubs, measure up. All right, Masi, so let's start with uh, the Champions League action and then kind of go into the weekend's action from a club perspective. Because, you know, as we're, as we're seeing these players play at big clubs, they have their midweek action uh, and some at these big clubs uh, with Champions League and or Europa League and then continuing on into the weekend. All right, Giorena, which I think for a lot of people, notwithstanding how great Christian Pulisic is, is really something that people are focusing uh, focusing on now. Uh, midweek uh, Champions League with uh, with Dortmund. He did not start, okay? 
were were you concerned he came on got an assist were you concerned and should we be concerned that he didn't start or is this just a a rotation and uh it's okay he's he's still well on his way to becoming a star yeah, no concern at all just a rotation uh he did come on at halftime when they were losing and provided an assist to holland that combination again uh but it wasn't enough for dortmund who lost 3-1 away to lazio a a bad result for them um and uh you know i, I mocked Raphael hannenstein for talking up chiro immobile facing dortmund as one of the uh, big uh storylines of this group stage, but it is at least worth a mention that uh, Chiro Immobile is a striker who, uh, when Lewandowski left Dortmund for Bayern in the summer of 2014, uh, Chiro Immobile was the guy that Dortmund brought into great fanfare to replace Lewandowski. He failed miserably at that, spent one season at Dortmund, was a flop, then went back to Italy, and he's had all sorts of success with Lazio now in the last couple of years, and so this was interesting to have him face Dortmund, and lo and behold, he scored. And Lazio get a big win, uh, 3-1 over uh, Gio Reyn and company. But Reyn, as we mentioned, did get an assist off the bench in that one. Okay, so we're all good. We're, we're all good with Reyna. All right, what about Christian Pulisic over there uh, at Chelsea, Mossy? Are we okay with him? I mean, he's healthy, which is a good thing. I mean, that's the first thing you always look to when it comes to Christian Pulisic. Yeah, and that's it. He started uh, uh, Chelsea's home game against Sevilla, which ended 0-0. wasn't a great performance by him or Chelsea, but still, you just want to see him get a nice run of games here and stay fit, so... Uh, just in that sense, I would say it's a positive. And he continues to be, I think, when we watched him this week, we'll get a little bit more into uh, to later, but he continues to be, when he gets the ball, exciting. And I know we look at him, obviously, as, as an American, but I think even if you take that out, he has that special thing that when he gets the ball, his first thought, and we've said it time and time again, but I think it bears repeating, his first thought is to go forward and to attack. And I think... In a, in a certain way, that's a lost art, skill, quality. And, and a lot of it is relative to the way the game is played right now. And you just don't find players like that, that consistently, as soon as they get it, boom. And they have the quickness and the speed and the technical ability to do, uh, to the, to do those things. So that's, that's important. Uh, who else are we talking about? Uh, Tyler Adams. How about our friend Tyler uh, Adams? Came on as a sub in Leipzig's 2-0 win over Istanbul Başakşehir. So uh, nice result for Leipzig there to start off the group stage. Yeah, and and so you know at least these players are getting on the field. Obviously, you want them starting. I I, I have said this before, and I uh, and I want to say it again. As we get into, and we're going to talk more about Greg Berhalter and the national team in a little bit. I think that Tyler Adams has the potential, and again, these guys, if they stay healthy to be as important and even more important as any of the other players. And when all is said and done, we may look at Tyler Adams, both from his actual play and his leadership uh, capabilities uh, and, and importance going forward as being that player that is the first player that you put on the field and that without him on the field, the U.S. men's national team is uh, is going to is going to suffer. But, you know, he has had some injuries. It's good that he's getting on the field. And I do think the way that... Uh, the way that RB Leipzig talks about him, it is in those glowing terms. Whenever you hear players and coaches talk about him, it's never, they don't couch anything. It's never a situation like we're seeing right now at Bayern Munich with, who's the Canadian? Alfonso Davies. <laughs> Alfonso Davies uh, where they're kind of saying, ah, you know, he's not quite at the level and we've seen a, a regression here or there. There's, there's none of that when it comes to Tyler Adams. I think he is... He, his importance, I think, is beyond debate right now when it comes to uh, to where he's playing and where he's probably going to play. 
Uh, who else, Mossy? Oh, Serginho Dest, right? So, lots to talk about with him because we'll get to the Cl- Clasico shortly. But uh, as far as the Champions League, he started at left back in Barcelona's 5-1 drubbing of Ferenc Varos and played well again, got high marks from the Barcelona media. So all good there for Serginho. Yeah, and look, this is this is a whole even even an even higher level if if you will than you know what we've seen with Christian what we've seen with even even relative to Juventus this is there is there is rarefied air and then there is even more rarefied air and so that the fact that he is being called upon immediately and the fact that he is, he hasn't missed a beat i mean he if if you didn't know that he was new you wouldn't know uh watching him out there and that's that's great. Now that he's not being necessarily associated with the greatest Barcelona team, or with a or with a Barcelona team that is just winning every single game, you know that's that's not great. But and and we'll talk a little bit more, like you said, uh, about the weekend. He's not being looked at right now as the problem or a step uh, a step down. He is coming out of every situation where people are saying, "Yep." Eh, Fits the bill, looks uh, uh, looks good. Uh, Ethan Horvath, the goalkeeper for uh, Club Bruges. You call it Bruges, Mossy? What do you? How do you pronounce? Yeah, Bruges. Okay, but there's other. I was listening. I was watching some uh, some uh, something online earlier. <laughs> they were calling Bruga. I think somebody was calling it Bruga or something like that. But, uh, whatever. A, a wonderful story for Ethan <laughs> Horvath, who who has gone through. <laughs> Difficult uh, time as players go uh, go through. He he gets the start. He gets the win. Thoughts on that, Mossy? Yeah, it was his first start in 13 months in September 2019. He started this game because Mignolet tested positive for coronavirus, and Horvath uh, scored an own goal in the second half, but then bounced back, made some big saves late, and Bruges got a late winner. So 2-1 victory away to Zenit in my favorite city, St. Petersburg. And he was crying afterwards. His teammates were very happy for him. So as you know, I'm, I'm devoid of any emotion, but for somebody like you, that had to be something of a feel-good moment. Exactly. I mean, you, you, you are a robot and we know that. But uh, for those of us that feel uh, and feel uh, pain and love and everything in between, you know, this was this was a moment to see the humanity. This was the moment to uh, see the personality uh, and, as you said, the, the emotion of a player. And we sometimes gloss over the injury part of it or we make fun or sport of uh, the injury part of it. And it, it plays... It, it can play not just on your physical being, but on your emotional being. And especially for some of these players that are going over in search of fame and fortune and all sorts of different wild twists and turns can happen and good and bad. And there's moments where you're sitting, I don't know, alone in an apartment in a strange city, in a strange culture, in a strange country, and you're trying to fit in, and you're find, trying to find your break. And it it doesn't look like it's ever going to come. Now, I'm not saying that this is it, but you could see that this was a cathartic type of experience for this player who has been through a lot. To get that moment, to get that moment that we all crave as, as professional athletes, to be there, to star, to to win the game, to be called on, and to step up in that moment. That's that's great. Now, this has nothing to do necessarily with, with the national team or anything like that. This just is a an American player who took this less traveled pathway, and it has been rocky at times. And so I was happy, and you, you, you can't help but be happy unless you're a robot for a player to, to experience that. Who knows if this changes 
but this was a great moment for him. All right, some other stuff when it comes to uh, well, let me just say very quickly. Let me just say very quickly. Oh, you got coaching something. front with Americans. A bad result for Jesse Marsh. Salzburg drew 2-2 at home against Lokomotiv Moscow. And when you're in a group with Bayern and Atletico Madrid, if you have any visions of advancing, you need to collect the six points against uh, Lokomotiv Moscow. So that wasn't great. And, and yeah, just to put a ribbon on the American thing, Tuesday, that first day of the Champions League group stage, it did become another occasion for Americans to revel in this growing presence at the top of the European game. And Greg Berhalter came out and said, the ultimate measuring stick of a country's talent is how many players you have competing in the UEFA Champions League. Do you subscribe to that notion? No, it's he's absolutely right. But the measuring stick is a perception stick. So he recognizes that that's where the credibility comes from. Okay, not necessarily the performance, and we're going to talk about that a little later in the in the show. But he's absolutely right in that the perception and the credibility of who you are as an individual player and who you are as a soccer playing nation often often is directly related to the number of players that you have playing in in uh, in Champions League. So I I get it. And so he's going to trumpet that because it makes American soccer look better. Uh, it makes the individual players look better and of higher value, whether that's the case or not. Actually, it's irrelevant whether it's the case or not until they actually get on the field for the national team. But as far as their value and then that perceived quality and then that change of perception and a much more positive type of perception, he's absolutely right in, in saying that you need that and you want that because that that's changes hearts and minds, not just domestically, uh, but internationally. What else, Mossy? Well, and then otherwise in the Champions League, uh, stepping away from the Americans a little bit, uh, some results that caught my eye. Uh, Real Madrid lost at home to Shakhtar. The story here is that Zidane had one eye on the Clasico, so he left Benzema on the bench, and Sergio Ramos missed the game due to injury. And you take those two guys out, and it's a totally different team. It was a very toothless attack. Jovic is a disaster. And then at the back, they were a mess without Ramos. Milito and Varane both struggled. And so Shakhtar, who were missing loads of guys, had their way with Real Madrid in the first half. They were up 3-0 at the break. Then Zidane brings on Benzema, he brings on Vinicius, and Real Madrid staged something of a rally in the second half. They get it to 3-2. They actually scored a late equalizer of Valverde, but it was ruled out correctly for offsides. So a bad result here to start out the group stage for Real Madrid. Um, and then... Uh, well, well, hold on. So are you are you absolving Zidane for for thinking ahead? Or, I mean, is it is that what Real Madrid is in 2020? It, two players out, Benzema and Sergio Ramos? And, and yes, they're great players. Absolutely. But, but this is one of the great teams in the world. They can't afford to have two players out? No, you're right. It, it speaks to the lack of depth in certain areas. And, and there was a debate in the Madrid media for a couple of days there saying, wait a minute, uh, the Shakhtar game, that's one of six. The Barcelona game, as big as it is, is one of 38. And why this early in the season are you prioritizing a league game over uh, a, a Champions League group game? So He thought they were going to roll over him. <laughs> I mean, that's what it, honestly, that's what it is. Yeah. And, and, I, and I get it. I mean, you're Real Madrid and this is Shakhtar. And, and you know, that's I, that's a little flip, but the reality and by the way like you mentioned 10 of their players are out with covid and you know almost the entire starting lineup if you will so i i i don't want to absolve him because you're the real madrid, the real madrid coach but i i get why you would look at this as an opportunity playing at home where we're going to throw out a team and we're going to be competitive and we're going to be better on the day and then it just all went to hell in a handbasket and then terrific result from manchester united they win 2-1 away to 
PSG and a fully deserved three points. They created the better chances throughout this game, especially those last 20, 25 minutes. You would have thought PSG would be the team on the front foot pushing for a winner. Instead, it was United creating great chances. Kaylor Navas stood in his head, but finally he couldn't stop. Uh, Marcus Rashford shot a beautiful goal by Rashford. Um, uh, and speaking of goalkeepers, by the way, De Gea had kind of a turn back the clock performance to his glory days because uh, he made a save on Mbappe early in the second half, which was phenomenal. Great play by Mbappe cutting in from the left. He twisted his way past like three United defenders and then this mm -hmm. curving shot that you would have thought was going to be a goal. And then De Gea just and somehow got his hand on it. So some great goalkeeping in this game. Well, you remember there was a period there with De Gea where we were saying at the end of the season and during the entire season, how many we were trying to calculate how many points he single-handedly secured and saved for the team and how bad it possibly could have been. And then it all went off the rails for him. So that and, and like you said, that save there, you were back to the time where he said, if we don't have that goalkeeper there, we're not getting uh, we're we're not getting those points. But the ultimate question then is, is Manchester United actually a good team? Is Ole the answer? I mean, we keep going back and forth and back and forth. And does this result now change the way that you look at him or you look at this team? Yeah, he has almost, dare I say, a Zidane-esque knack for whenever the criticism is growing to pull like a great result uh, rabbit out of the hat. And, and yeah, he sort of did that here. And so now he's kind of solidified himself again. Yeah, I like him. I like this team. I was high in United coming into the season and disappointed in what I'd seen so far. But so I, I still think there's the makings of a, of, of a really good team there. And, and this was certainly a terrific start to the group stage for them. They had, remember, this was something of a revenge game for PSG. United had knocked them out a couple years ago by winning a second leg uh, in Paris with Marcus Rashford scoring a late penalty. And what happens here? United win again with a late Rashford goal. So they've really got PSG's number now. So You, you mentioned a little earlier about uh, Christian Pulisic and Chelsea and Sevilla. Is that who? Who is that good for? Zero zero. Sevilla came out of that that game feeling really good about themselves. You okay. know, they win the Europa League last season, but you know, the Champions League it's a step up in class, and they've had two acid tests here to show that they're really capable of competing against the elite. Uh, that UEFA Super Cup against Bayern, they acquitted themselves very well there. They lost an extra time, and then they go away to Chelsea, match they won, and and probably were the better team in this game and get out of there with a point. So I think Sevilla really feel good feel good about themselves coming out of this game. And that, the, the, other, right, so the other game I did want to highlight is Bayern, which I, I watched this game from start to finish. They beat Atletico Madrid 4-0. And believe me when I tell you this, Atletico Madrid did not play badly. They actually played pretty well. Bayern were just that good. And they didn't have Sané. They didn't have Gnabry. Lewandowski didn't score. And still they pummel Atletico Madrid 4-0. It, it was two by Coman, one by Goretzka, other by Tolisso. Each goal was prettier than the next. They could have had more. And this was the sort of performance that you just take a step back and you're just, wow, this team is just see, on see, a different that, my level. That is depth <laughs> at a super club, okay? That's what Real Madrid should be able to do, but they can't do. Good God. Uh, all right, so they, they played well, but still got their ass handed to Correct, all right, correct. All right. Good, good. Well, that's what... Which is almost I mean, worse if you think about it. <laughs> it. So so if you had to right now, okay, take all of the uh, mossy uh, household money that you have, right, and put it on a team, would you still would you put it on Bayern Munich right now to win Champions League again? Yeah, I had uh, Bayern and Liverpool as being sort of a cut above everybody else, and okay. the Van Dyke injury happened. So now I got to see Liverpool without Van Dyke. I might have to like drop him down a level and, and leave Bayern up there all alone on top. Is, so is there a player on Bayern Munich that 
is Van Dyke esque in that they can't live without him, and your perception of that team completely changes without them? It would be Lewandowski, yeah. And really? with, all, with, all, with all due respect to Chupu Moting, I think uh, if they oh, were to lose wow. Lewandowski for the dripping. season, they would not win the Champions League. You're dripping with sarcasm when you say <laughs> these things. It's just, it's, it's brutal. Uh, okay, let, let's finish it up with this. You know how we love to talk about Pep, and sometimes it has nothing, nothing to do. Uh, Man City, uh, Porto, you know, they got the result three to one. But explain to me all the craziness that was going on in the sideline, and then even trickled out, uh, out to after, uh, after between the uh, the coaches and the animosity and the anger and the irritation and the angst between these coaches after the game. Yeah, Pep got into it with the Porto coach, Sergio Conceição. Evidently, uh, the Porto... I never would have pronounced like, it like that. Like Pep and the whole city bench and, and the substitutes were just tripping uh, at the referee the whole game and working the refs. And he actually thought like they were getting all the calls. So what are they complaining about? And so uh, he, he went after Pep a little bit after the game. Uh, Pep just in general seems... I continue to feel like this was maybe one season too many with Pep and he just wears on you. And he just seems very irritated himself and just picking fights with everybody. So... Uh, you know, this occurs in the context of all that. Okay, in, in this echelon that we're kind of talking about right now when it comes to teams, where where is Man City? It, it seems that they, they've, they've fallen, and it's a precipitous type of fall right now, and maybe that's part of what the irritation is with Pep, is he, you know, he sees the writing on the wall and he sees what's going on uh, right now and taking it out on poor little uh, Sergio yeah, Conscious Chichau. I can't, I can't <laughs> pronounce it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just getting a bad vibe off City. Uh, and of course, now you have both strikers, Aguero and Jesus, battling fitness issues early on this season. So that's a problem. So uh, and just overall, yeah, I, I don't I don't see this being the season where they break through in the Champions League. I, I actually wouldn't list them amongst my handful of top, top contenders to win it. Would you bet that Pep is there next year? Yeah, I could see this being the final season. I really could. Oof. Wow. And by the All way, right, just, set- just to spin it forward quickly, uh, there's a real great showdown this week in the Champions League, Juventus-Barcelona. But uh, the latest I've read is that Ronaldo, who missed this past weekend's game because of testing positive for COVID, he's now going to get retested. Uh, there's a standard test 24 hours before each game, and then the result of that test will determine his availability, which obviously we're all hoping he plays because you then get uh, another Ronaldo-Messi showdown. All right, so let's spin it to the weekend uh, and, and hit on some uh, some games that stood out. Obviously, it was a weekend for El Clasico. What, what were your thoughts on uh, on this El Clasico that is not played in front of anybody? And uh, was it as exciting to you as uh, it can't be as exciting as the things in the past? But was it was it still something to be seen? Yeah, I thought it was actually a terrific first half, and then the game kind of petered out in the second half. Mm-hmm. Real Madrid was clearly the better team, deserved the three points on balance of play, but the game-winning goal did come about due to a very contested penalty upon a VAR review. Uh, still a lot of controversy uh, surrounding this decision. Uh, what did you make of it? The penalty awarded uh, on the shirt tug, long lay, pulling Sergio Ramos down. It's a penalty, and... Look, if I if I go out on the 405, Mossy, all right? Actually, I was on the 405 this morning, okay? I had to go get uh, COVID tested. And I, I'll be honest with you, Mossy, uh, I broke the speed limit. I went over 55 miles an hour. There were people all over flying past me, okay? And if I had gotten pulled over by a policeman uh, and I rolled down the window and I said, but officer, everybody else was speeding. 
Okay, that's not an excuse. I'm still getting a ticket and I still broke the law. It's the same thing, okay? If you grab somebody's jersey, and yes, I know you could find 10 examples of it, but buyer beware, okay? If you are a player and you are playing in 2020 with VAR, okay, you know the risk and you want to take that risk, fine. When you get dinged, you don't get to point to everybody else and say, yeah, but they were doing the same thing. That didn't work for my mom. That didn't work for the policeman. And it's not going to work here for VAR. It's a penalty. Okay. Once again, you know, I, I, I know you guys love uh, when I scream and yell about you can't be a little pregnant. Well, you can't be a little pregnant. Grab this shirt. Okay. Now, did Sergio Ramos embellish? embellish? Yeah. But we've talked about this before. Sometimes you got to cry a little. Sometimes you have to point, hey, look, I am being uh, the, I am being victimized here. Make sure that you recognize what is happening right here. This person is breaking the law, the laws, the laws of the game. And you got to so that, that I, I had no problem with the entire play. And I certainly don't have a, any problem with uh, with the call. Do you, Mossy? No, I mean, Kuman did go down the path that you mentioned saying that, oh, this happens in virtually every cross, every corner into the box, and it's completely arbitrary uh, why they call it sometimes and not others. And that argument was strengthened a bit. If you watch the Manchester United-Chelsea game, immediately afterwards, there was a play in the first half where Harry Maguire basically, you know, like bear-hugged Aspliquita yep. in the box, and somehow that's not a penalty, and the Real Madrid play is. So a lot of people were sort of juxtaposing those plays against each other. I, well, the, one thing I will say, though, is, Whatever you think of this decision, the behavior of the Barcelona media in the aftermath has been absolutely disgraceful. They are concocting this whole conspiracy theory that the referee is a Real Madrid fan, even going to the lengths of like <laughs> interviewing his neighbors and, and his friends. And they've uncovered the fact that this referee's father once started a Madrid supporters club and splashing this on the front pages like this is some giant conspiracy. And, and you know, all it takes is one crazy idiot fan to read that and go do something stupid. But I mean, you got to be careful with that stuff. I mean, my God, I mean, whether you agree or disagree with the decision, don't start reading bad faith into people. I mean, I, I just to me, that's very, very off putting behavior. Wow. But uh, but not surprising. <laughs> uh, all right. So but when it when it comes to right, a couple of things, good news from American perspective, Sergino just started the game, played the entire game. And as I mentioned before, he may have lost the battle, but he's winning the war in that he came out. Not, smell, not smelling like a rose, but there was nobody that pointed to anything that he did, okay, that was that was that was negative other than being on the losing side. And he himself, after the game, actually said that, you know, I, I'm pissed that we lost, and and that's not something I want to do, which is great. But his actual individual performances performance was actually was a, was looked at as a bright spot. So that's great. That's great for him. First off, that he's on the field. Second off, that when he's on the field, even in a losing effort, people recognize that this is something to build on. Right there. Am I am I framing that correctly? As far as the the way I saw it and the way that most people saw it. I agree, a hundred percent. Thought he had an excellent okay. game. Completely shut down Vinicius. And, and showed some skill going forward. So, yeah, the, the Barcelona media remains very high on him. I think rightly so. He's off to a great start there. Um, but beyond that, uh, Kuman, a couple of things. Uh, I didn't like him playing Coutinho out on the left. Um, I felt like he got kind of lost there. He's had success this season playing more centrally. I also thought Messi was having to drop too far back to, to try to create things. And so 
there were some things tactically I didn't love with Barcelona there. And then, boy, he waited quite a long time to make the subs. He brought on uh, three guys all at once, uh, including Griezmann and Dembele, who they came on at the same time. But I actually think Griezmann's situation has deteriorated to the point where Dembele is probably ahead of him in the reclamation project pecking order. I think Kuma now feels like Dembele is more recoverable than Griezmann even. So, yeah, Antoine Griezmann's situation there just goes from bad to worse. So we, we've talked so much about the, the situation with Messi over the summer and if this is just a fait accompli and that, and that he's just going to play out this year and then go someplace else. And we also talked about talk about Reclamation Project. The, the onus and the responsibility on Barcelona and obviously Koeman to create a situation where next summer when Messi is making this decision that he actually potentially wants to continue on. But this this is not this is not good, Mossy, in terms of that part of the equation right now. You're sitting in the middle of the table. It does not look good. He did not look particularly good. He phased out, certainly had some some individual moments because he's messy and he's able to do that. But has he already checked out? And in a way, has Messi already has Barcelona already checked out on him? Yeah, he he looked very frustrated. As you mentioned, he had a pretty good first half, played a beautiful ball over the top to Jordi Alba on the goal. Alba then squared it across for Fatih and then had a couple of other nice moves. There was one play I have to highlight. I know goalkeepers have been kind of a big theme for me today. Uh, in the first half where a ball was floated to him in the box, he chested it down, then skipped past Sergio Ramos, and then yeah. and right foot. with his right foot. And boy, when he let it go, you thought, this is definitely a goal. And Courtois somehow stuck his pot at the perfect time. It was an incredible save by Courtois. And, and by the way, Neto, the Brazilian who's filling in for Ter Stegen, had a very good game at the other end, made some great saves too. So goalkeeping, very good this weekend. But yeah, uh, you first half pretty good for Messi, but boy, definitely faded out of the game second half. And just his body language in the second half and immediately after the final whistle, I mean, again, he still does not look happy there. You felt like he was already like concocting another bureau fax in his head and what the next one is going to be because, yeah, certainly this start of the season has not really sort of lifted his spirits at all. All right, so we talked about Juventus and not having uh, Cristiano Ronaldo and who knows what's going to happen this week. Uh, we also talked about uh, Americans and Weston McKinney, who uh, has not found the field yet and didn't again this weekend when it comes uh, to the 1-1 result that uh, that Juventus had with Verona. Um, it, is, this, is this a problem for Weston McKinney uh, right now, or is this just a natural type of progression that we kind of talked about where he was given that opportunity early, there was plenty of other quality and talent that was waiting in the wings, either injured or just, or just coming back into form, that now we are starting to see the real Juventus. He might not be as used as often as we would certainly like from an American perspective, but this is reality kind of setting in. Yeah, boy, he it's, it's rough because he had that impressive debut, then he has one bad game uh, against Roma, and, and then obviously that, that uh, testing positive for coronavirus didn't help, but you do already get the sense that he's slipping down the pecking order there. Now, as I mentioned, they have Barcelona, big game coming this midweek, and we'll see if he gets on the field there. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a, a tad concerning. It's early. I wouldn't go, go crazy over it. But uh, And then Juve in general, they draw 1-1 against Verona, and they've won just two of their first five Serie A games. So there, there's, a, you know, there's a lot of the positive feeling around Pirlo. Everybody wants this to work out, so they're going to mm-hmm. cut him some slack. But I have to say, it's not a great start to the season for Juventus. Uh, Milan play uh, Roma today. Uh, we're taping this on a Monday. And so they're looking to continue their perfect start to the season. They're in first place in Serie A right now. So Juve early on here already has some catching up to do. Hey, listen, uh, 
it doesn't matter whether you're a legend and have great hair. Um, <laughs> if you coach Juve and you can't find a way to at least win the Scudetto, then then you got problems. <laughs> you got problems. All right, finish it up. Did anything uh, pique your interest in terms of uh, EPL action this weekend? We saw Everton get their first loss. We saw this defensive struggle between Manchester United and uh, and Chelsea. Anything uh, that was exciting to you when it comes to uh, EPL? I wouldn't call it exciting, but the United-Chelsea <laughs> game was interesting. It ended nil-nil. I think both managers are okay with that result, particularly Frank Lampard. You know, I know they've had back-to-back nil-nil draws here, but I think he feels pretty confident that the attack will come good. The big question for Chelsea is defensively, and you're starting to see some positive signs there. Mendy had a, a very good game, uh, made a couple of great saves on Rashford, a kick save in the first half, and then mm-hmm. a diving save late in the game. He did have one blooperish moment in the first half where he almost passed the ball into his own net, but that one play notwithstanding, Mendy was terrific. I thought Thiago Silva had a very good game. So all of a sudden, you're starting to see the makings of actually a decent Chelsea back line there, which if they can defend with what they have going forward, uh, they're going to be tough to beat. And, and, and you mentioned Pulisic earlier. Uh, I thought he actually had a, a pretty good game here, was active, uh, did some things. So, um, yeah, so that, that was my big takeaway there. Did you, what did you glean from this? Not much. Not much. And, and then uh, let me just close it up with Bundesliga. Uh, Bayern 5-0 over Frankfurt. Lewandowski with a hat trick. He has 10 in five Bundesliga games this season. Off to incredible start. And then Dortmund thumped Schalke 3-0. This is a, a great rivalry, but right now these two teams aren't boxing in the same weight class. Reina did start this game. Uh, Holland, surprise, surprise, got one of the three goals. And, and yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, we, we talked about our favorite derbies last weekend. Although, as it I was pointed as was pointed out to us by a guy named Fish on Twitter, we kind of uh, took some liberties with the, with uh, the term derby. It's supposed to mean two teams in the same city, and we immediately went to USA, Mexico, Barcelona, Real Madrid. We just started talking about great rivalries in general, so uh, we should acknowledge that. But um, I f- forgot what English paper was. They did this week some ranking of the the greatest uh, rivalries in, in in club football, and Dortmund Schalke was very high up there. So that 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 rivalry still has some cachet. But right now, it's, it's I mean, those two teams are not even on the same level, and Dortmund blew them away. All right, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna proclaim that if you call it Derby, then it has to be in the same city. But if you call it Derby, it doesn't have to be in the same city. So that's that's what we're going to go with. All right, listen, we're going to uh, uh, come back with uh, some MLS roundup action because there was all sorts of stuff going uh, on there. But really good stuff happening over in Europe when it comes to uh, American players. And we hope to see uh, hope to see more of that uh, going forward. Uh, Mossy, anything uh, before we before we head off? That's it. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Like I said, coming back with some MLS uh, roundup action. All right, don't go away. Moving on. Okay, we're back. Uh, MLS roundup. All sorts of stuff happening in MLS as we get down to the nitty gritty, uh, as we get down to the end of (laughs) what has been a a very interesting uh, and challenging season. We are... We are faced with the fact that we are going to end this regular season. And let's be honest, it is going to be a regular season unlike anything else that we've ever seen with the MLS's bubble, uh, MLS's back bubble that we saw down in Orlando uh, mid-tournament with the start of play with crowd and the rest of the season for the most part without crowds. And then what is not announced yet, but it's just a matter of time before this gets announced, where... There are going to be teams with far few games played. And so therefore, 
either all or some of the teams and uh, conferences are going to go to points per game. Uh, but we're coming down and everybody is doing this this dance that we do at the end of even a regular season, a, a regular normal season, where you have this musical chairs type of aspect, uh, people moving up, down, and everywhere in between trying to secure those uh, precious playoff spots. And there's a lot of them out there, uh, but at some point this music is going to stop and there will be some teams left without any seats. We did have El Trafico, uh, which is back again. It, it's hard talking about any of these these big rivalries without fans in the stands. But uh, LAFC, uh, which is on the ascension, I guess you would you would call it in the way that they have gone against their inner city, and I'm, I'm using that term loosely. I know it's down in Carson, but their inner city rival, um, LA Galaxy, hosting the LA Galaxy, and uh, the LA Galaxy is in shambles. It is it is a mess. There was a moment, a brief moment of glory in the middle of this year when we thought things had turned and they were heading in the right direction, but that was fleeting. And it is gone, and not only gone, but LA Galaxy found themselves in last place coming into this game and proceeded to lay another egg um, and change the game immediately with uh, a red card in the first half. LAFC goes on to not only win, but also welcome back the last year's MVP, who's been out most of the season in Carlos Vela, who then proceeds to score a goal. They win 2-0, um, take the three points against a hapless Los Angeles Galaxy. Also a, LA, uh, a Los Angeles Galaxy without... Chicharito, uh, yet again, evidently he pulled, uh, pulled a hammy and uh, was not even available to play. So this is, this is good days and good news if you are an LAFC fan, and this is just continued bad news and bad days for the LA Galaxy right now, which we'll talk about in a second. But just thoughts on the game first before we go to some of the off-the-field situation. Was the ball in or out? <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, uh, so for those that didn't uh, see it, the th this was a game where eleven versus eleven. It was relatively equal. The red card comes, and LA Galaxy immediately looks at the situation and says, "All right, we're going to pack it in." Um, the interesting part about that red card was initially the call was made for a penalty in the box. A, uh, or a foul in the box, a penalty awarded, and because it was deemed that the defender was at least making an attempt on the ball with the way the rules and laws are right now, it was only it was given a yellow card. After VAR looked at the play, they went back and they said, no, um, this foul actually occurred outside the box. And if it happens outside the box, then that rule doesn't apply about the, uh, the triple jeopardy type of thing. And so... The red card uh, was awarded in that uh, in that moment. Actually, VAR in that instance worked perfectly. Got it right. Uh, it was efficient. It was clear. Everybody understood what was going on, and it was VAR at its best. Okay, but that, like I said, it did change the game. And from then on, it was just LAFC trying to break down uh, the LA Galaxy. Uh, the goal that you're talking about and the controversy around it was actually one of the moments where the galaxy got stretched. The ball appeared 
to go over the end line of LAFC, which would have resulted in a Los Angeles Galaxy corner. Uh, one of the few times that the Galaxy was actually in LAFC's end. Uh, the call was not made by the AR or the, uh, uh, or the referee in that moment. And LAFC, in that attacking phase, went down to the other end of the field, all in a matter of seconds, scored their goal, uh, took the lead. Everyone went crazy. Uh, the play was reviewed from a television perspective. And this is where people that say, we shouldn't have VAR. Television immediately starts showing all of the views that they have. And when you look at it, uh, just to the naked eye, you can say, you could certainly make the argument that the ball looked like it was over the line, which would therefore negate that uh, goal from a, VR, from a VAR perspective. However, when the referees looked and the, uh, the VAR got involved, they decided that no, there was not enough evidence to clearly show that that ball was over the line and everybody lost their mind. I didn't, okay, because uh, I believe in science uh, and I believe in uh, geometry and physics and I believe that a ball is a sphere. And just because the ball looks like it is over the line doesn't mean that the entire ball is over the line. And until we actually have a camera that shows the exact lineup of the line, it's impossible to know. In the same way that we have the, uh, the camera on the actual goal line for goals, if you extended it out, that's what we would have needed in that instance to clearly say that that ball uh, was over. And I know at times we have said a ball is over. And we have used the video, even though it's not on the line, to say the ball is over. And that's where that subjective type of uh, decision, uh, decision comes from. But if this game was closer, if this game, and, and I know it shouldn't matter, but it does, all right? If this game was closer, I think the Galaxy folks, and probably even myself, would be screaming more for answers and feeling much more hard done in this situation. But this, this, was, this was inches. I can justify what happened in that moment from a officiating and VAR perspective. And so I'm fine with this, uh, with this situation happening. What did you think, Lossi? Yeah, I've talked about this in the context of goal line technology. It's tough because it does often betray the naked eye. But this is one area where people have generally uh, agreed to trust the science. And you don't see as much controversy with this type of decision as, as you see with offsides, for whatever reason, you know, I, I've often referenced the Manchester City Liverpool game a couple of seasons ago that effectively decided the Premier League title where Liverpool had a shot that to the naked eye seemed like it was definitely a goal. And then the goal line technologist said, no, the ball didn't completely cross the line. And Liverpool fans bemoan how close they came, but nobody argued that if that's what goal line technology said, that's what it said. And so, yeah, in these types of decisions, for whatever reason, it seems like people have decided to trust the science. So, yeah, I guess I have to go with it. If they said it didn't completely cross the line, then it didn't. Well, all of this leaves uh, the Los Angeles Galaxy <laughs> bitter uh, and in no better position than the, actually a worse position in terms of making the playoffs than they were um, before this game. You know, you know we talked earlier um, about, you know, in earlier podcasts about how to view 2020 and the different ways that different teams and, and people view it and how much credence to give it and how much um, responsibility 
and consequence to give to what happens in 2020, which is why I said, you're going to be given a leash and you're going to be given the benefit of the doubt and you will be let off much more and forgiven much more in 2020 than in previous uh, situations and years because of the unique aspect of it. So each club has to decide how much, how much is 2020 worth? Someone like Atlanta decided that it's not good enough even if it happens in 2020. And, you know, they got rid of their coach. And they certainly haven't continued to, to do well. And some of it will be forgiven. The Los Angeles Galaxy has to decide how much of this failure is simply relative to the personnel that they have and how much is relative to, you know, just the, the fates and the 2020 gods conspiring. Um, and I don't know what, what their calculus is going to be. You have... Chris Klein, you have Dennis DeClosa, you have Jovan Karofsky, um, you have Dan Beckerman, who's the head of AEG and is making a decision on all of those people. And then obviously you have Guillermo Barashkiloto right now. I, I don't see this sustainable uh, in terms of Guillermo Barashkiloto. If, if the Galaxy goes on, doesn't make the playoffs, and just sputters out here at the end, which it looks like it's going to happen, then I don't see him back uh, next year. The question from a Galaxy perspective is, do they have the right personnel making those decisions for who next is going to be in charge? Or is it a bigger type of responsibility? And is 2020 not as uh, or, or as important as any other year? And therefore, the ramifications of it um, are going to be relative to any other year. I, I don't know what that's going to happen, but this is not good enough. This is not good enough for the Los Angeles Galaxy. And Look, I, I, I was in charge when the, when the Galaxy sucked too, all right? And I, I knew at the moment that it wasn't good enough. And obviously, myself and others, you know, we, we, we paid the price. But we, we knew what the Galaxy was going in. We knew the expectations. We knew the history. And we knew that if you don't live up to it, okay, you're not going to be there. And so I, I'll be really interested to see if it goes beyond Guillermo Barsquiloto, uh, in terms of the changes that are made uh, next year. I don't want people to lose their jobs. I don't get excited about it. Uh, I know it's sport out there, and these are human beings with families and kids and livelihoods and, and, and all of that. But this is the Los Angeles Galaxy, okay? And it has built itself, as I've said time and time again over the last 24 years, as being one, if not the super club of Major League Soccer, and it's not living up to that. And it maybe it wants to go in a different direction, but fine. But that's not the galaxy that I know. Mossy, thoughts? Uh, one note, uh, Palmeiras in Brazil are currently searching for a new manager, and Guillermo Barroscoloto has been mentioned as a possibility. He still has cachet in South America despite his galaxy struggles because of what he did at Boca. And Palmeiras are scrambling a little bit right now because their top choice, Miguel and Hel Jamirez, uh, turned them down. Uh, so Scalotto has been mentioned also another, uh, former Argentinian player, Gabriel Hines, but, uh, I don't know, Palmeiras might do the galaxy a favor here. If another club comes in for him and Scalotto decides, yeah, maybe I should go back to South American football. Uh, and he decides to take the job. I don't think the galaxy would be shedding any tears. It would, it would, uh, you know, they wouldn't have to fire him and they would be able to make a change that they probably are going to have to make anyway. It's, it, it's, it's a bad fit. And, <sighs> I get no sense of optimism 
or confidence or leadership, or I think the most important word is personality. I, I, and, and look, this has nothing to do with, with language or anything like that. I mean, one of the biggest personalities we've had in Major League Soccer was Tata Martino, okay? But your, your team reflects off of the leadership and reflects off of that personality. And I can't, I can't get a read on him at all. There, 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 there's nothing, there's nothing there that makes me want to run through a wall. And look, I'm not a player, so I don't have to do that for him. But you know, every good team, I think, has a leader, and people lead in different ways. I'm not talking about rah rah or, or screaming and yelling or anything like that. But at no time under Guillermo Barrasquillo have I looked at that leadership. And have I said, you know what? I might not agree with everything. That's okay if I don't agree. But that's someone that I would fight for. Or that's someone that has a plan. Or that is someone that is interesting. That is somebody who is going to make others believe in what he is selling. And, you know, that's that's not good for any team. And it's certainly not good, as I said, for, uh, for the Los Angeles Galaxy. Um and, you know, so we're at a point right now in 2020 where the Los Angeles Galaxy, unless something ridiculous happens, is going to fizzle out spectacularly. And Atlanta United, the other quote unquote super club um, out there, is also going to fizzle out. And uh, they made a change earlier on the season. And I think they will figure out once again what that leadership looks like and if they continue on with that leadership. And I'm not talking just about the coach. I'm talking about the leadership in terms of the decisions that are made. You know, you have Darren Eels and Carlos Bocanegra there and decide if that is to continue or if they make wholesale type of changes off the field. And then obviously that coach. I think that that coaching decision is going to be as important as the Los Angeles Galaxy uh, coaching decision. But Atlanta just hasn't gotten together at all. And yes, you can blame uh, the fact that the greatest goal scorer in Major League Soccer in uh, Joseph Martinez hasn't been there. I get it, but that can't be uh, that can't be all of it right now. Uh, before we get to decision day, uh, did you see any of the uh, Miami Orlando game, Mossy? I did not. Okay, so Miami hosting uh, Orlando. We don't have a name for this. I, mean, I just got done talking about El Trafico, and we still don't have a real good type of name. It's we've dropped the ball. All right. When it comes to American soccer, that we have had this in the palm of our hand and we still have yet to give it a name that sticks. They, they might have one, but I don't know it. And so therefore, not that I, I am the be all and end all, but if I don't know it, then it hasn't stuck the way El Trafico uh, has. So find a name, find something good. It's only going to get bigger and better as we go along. It was, uh, you know, Miami finding a way to beat Orlando. And this isn't just any Orlando team. This is Orlando this is Orlando 2020. This is a good, if not great, team in Major League Soccer. And one that's been on a, on a roll. And in terms of consecutive results for Orlando, this was a huge, huge win for Miami. It puts them well in contention of making the playoffs. And that would be them making the playoffs along with uh, Nashville in the first year. And I know it's 2020, but still that's an accomplishment no, no matter what. You know, this situation, oh, by the way, the, it also pointed out the completely different scenarios that exist when it comes to our country and how we are dealing with uh, uh, groups and spectators and uh, social type of settings. There, there, there was 
a what was what amounted to an entire supporters section of fans in Miami. Shirts off, screaming and yelling, singing, throwing beers all over the place. It was as if they were living in an alternate uh, universe. And I know it's Florida, so sometimes it is an alternate universe. But uh, it was it was amazing to to see, and they got to stick it out and see their team not just win, but win in their against their interstate uh, rival in a huge huge three points uh, for uh, uh, for Miami. Uh, Leandro uh, Gonzalez Perez, talk about Orlando and, and some of the players that they have lost and some of the decisions that they've uh, made, you know, with regards to uh, players that were there when the in the good times. He finds his way, set piece. Uh, gets gets the win at the end, so huge, huge for uh, result for them. Philadelphia, all right. I'll we'll end it there, and we could talk about every single game, but we're not going to talk about every single game. But I will. I do want to mention Philadelphia right now. Um, going into well, what would be Toronto, but since Toronto is playing their home games in Connecticut at Rensch, at Rentschler, uh, going in. Uh, uh, well, they didn't go to Rentschler. Excuse me. They, uh, in in Philadelphia, uh, just absolutely decimating. Uh, Toronto FC and decimating yes not a full strength Toronto FC but still five nothing Philadelphia this is as good as the Philadelphia Union has looked in their entire history and uh, that's a that's a great thing it's a great thing for them uh, and it's a great thing for us because we get to see a dynamic exciting entertaining type of Philadelphia Union team that right now is is on the verge of potentially winning uh, the supporter shield, which gets us to the supporter shield. We mentioned it last week. Surprise, surprise! Uh, the supporter shield is now being awarded after the uh, the craziness and the back and forth. Our long national nightmare, uh, international nightmare when it comes to Canada, is now over, and the battle for the asterisk is back on. And you will be given a plate and recognized and given your praise and your love that uh, you so obviously need, whoever that is, Toronto FC, Philadelphia Union, or anybody else that's, uh, th- that's vying for it. Uh, so that's, that's back on Philadelphia. Very, very good. I look forward to, uh, to seeing what they do because, you know, and now this gets into decision day. We are at this point, as I said, where everybody's jockeying for a chair. And the thought of the renewed opportunity that comes in the playoffs and how some teams will look at what they have done and be excited and you know uh, will use it to uh, to go on to better things and others will actually start thinking what if we've peaked what if this is as good as it, good as it gets because when all is said and done people remember MLS Cup they don't remember supporter shield they don't remember what you did in the regular season they remember if you are there at the end holding that MLS cup up with the confetti coming down. And that's what is written in the history books. And that is what is uh, ultimately remembered. And what you have done in the regular season gets you an advantage in the postseason, but it doesn't win it, which is why only seven of the 24 teams that have won supporter shield have then gone on and won MLS cup. And if you're Philadelphia right now and you're thinking, man, what can we parlay this into a performance in the playoffs and what if we don't will it all have been for naught and you know you know you'll you'll talk about the supporter shield whatever we're you know we're even with the asterisk that we call it but uh this is where it really gets uh gets interesting and as i said 
I would expect even maybe before we're even off of, uh, we, even when we, we, we get done recording this and maybe by the time you're listening to this or watching this, that that point per game type of scenario will have come into play. And it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be fair. It's just going to be 2020. And as we've said all along, just MLS trying to make the best of a crap situation. And everyone's going to scream and people will not be happy about this and that. But you know what? Save it for another day, all right? <laughs> we we got to get, get through this. And sometimes we just have to make decisions and let the chips fall where they may. Mossy, anything uh, regarding MLS? I know that's how you feel about the supporter show, but I'm not sure that's like the universally held opinion. And yeah, I mean, listen, I'm fine with them bringing it back. If, if it was going to anger people that much, then, then sure, you can bring it back. But uh, big picture, I'll just reiterate what I said last week. I think there's a somewhat odd dynamic right now between the Supporters' Shield and MLS Cup. It doesn't feel like the Supporters' Shield complements MLS Cup, but it feels like it competes with it. And whatever format you have, whether you have playoffs or not, at the end of the day, you crown a champion, and you want that to be the end-all and be-all. I don't know if you want to be giving out another trophy along the way that people actually point to and say, I think there's actually more value in winning that, and I think that's a better measuring stick for our season than the championship of the league. And I do think that's the dynamic right now, and it, and it strikes me as weird. But listen, if it doesn't bother you, it doesn't bother John Strong, it doesn't bother Grant Wall or Matt Doyle, then I guess I'm wrong. I'll shut up about it. But that's just how I feel right oh, now. Why did you capi- Why did you give in and capitulate so easy? Stand- because I seem to be the only one that Mossy. I seem to be the only one that finds this strange. No, Mossy. If that's what you believe, that is completely legitimate and fair. As wrong as it is, it is completely <laughs> legitimate and fair. Okay. Uh, you do need other trophies, and, uh, and I'll tell you why. It, it is good for teams to hold up trophies, okay? And look, maybe maybe I, I was a little bit harsh in that. Uh, I don't remember what I said, but it's not like nobody cares about the Supporters' Shield, okay? People do care about it, not the least of which is the Supporters' Shield after which it is named, or the actual supporters. I, I, I get that. It is that moment when you get to hold something up. Trophy cases are, are made to put things like that. And so the more opportunities we have to award trophies, I think the better off it is. And in the same way that people celebrate the treble and the quadruple and, and all that kind of stuff, it's important. These are the things that you are... I mean, we celebrate a trophy that's one game over in uh, in England, right? At the beginning of the season. I mean, wh- why do we do that? Why do we care? Well, we care because... You win something. You, have, you, you, you hold up a trophy. And that is important. And it's also important because not everybody can do it. And only a certain amount uh, can do it. And don't they have, um, don't they say that you, uh, in baseball, Mossy, you know more about this. Don't they say that you won the pennant? Uh, sure, yeah. Okay, what does that mean? Yeah, if you win the American League or National League, you say you, they won the AL well, pennant. But why? I'm watching the World Series last night, Moss. Who the hell cares about winning the pennant in the National League or the American League? Nobody cares about that. All they care about is winning the World Series, right? No, what, what I'm saying, but look, they celebrate winning the pennant. People, I even know it's in my brain winning the pennant, okay? That's that's how, you know, that's how much they talk about something like that. So I, I, I disagree with you in that, um, I don't think that it takes away from major uh, from MLS Cup. I think, like I said, I still think MLS Cup is the one that you that you rest your hat on. It's the one that you get the ring. It's the one that when people talk about your career, I, I've never seen somebody that's won an MLS Cup 
uh, in their resume when people are giving their bio say, oh, yes, he won the Supporters' Shield, okay? Unless that person has never won an MLS Cup, which, where then you say it. I remember winning the Supporters' Shield. I remember being proud of it, but recognizing that it was nothing without the MLS Cup. We were one of those teams that actually went on and won both. And that pride of being able to do both because of how different they are, that never goes away. And I looked at the Supporters' Shield as obviously being the best team in the regular season. I looked at it much more from a almost a business perspective in that that means that my team gave our supporters, which are our customers, okay, the best product for the longest period of time. And I looked at it as that's something to be celebrated. That's something to be proud of. Uh, and that's what that's what the supporter shield represented to me. These are people that are paying money, that are that are spending, uh, you know, to, to buy season tickets, that are you know following us on the road, obviously coming to all of the home games, and they are buying our product. And I want a quality product for that eight months because we won the supporter shield. I knew that I was giving them that quality product. That's how I framed it in in my mind. But I also recognized that when they put up my name or any of my teammates' names at the end of the season, all right, if we won an MLS Cup, that's the first thing that they are going to put up there, not the supporters' shield. And that's okay. That's all right. I don't think it takes anything away. Anything and else, Mossy? A couple MLS other quick miscellaneous things. We also have a, you mentioned Philadelphia leapfrogging Toronto in the East. We also have a new first place team in the West, Sporting KC. They thumped Colorado. They've leapfrogged both Seattle and Portland. So Sporting KC now, first place there. And sneaky, sneaky good because I, I it, it's weird. I can't remember watching Sporting KC win, and yet they're at the top of they're at the top of the West. I don't know what what crazy magical, mysterious type of witchcraft that uh, Peter Vermes and company are doing, but it's this it's this strange thing where they've won a lot of games, and yet nobody was ever there and remembers them. I know, I'm just kidding. I know all you Sporting KC folks are out there. But that's that's the way that it that it seems. And and by the way, from Peter Vermes' perspective, he is fine with that, all right? Because he knows bigger things are coming when they uh, uh, when they sneak up. Anything else, And then Mossy? you mentioned Inter-Miami. It's worth noting, uh, Nashville too. So if the regular season ended right now, both expansion teams would be in the playoffs, which is kind of interesting. Two things I want to end uh, here from an MLS perspective. Two things. Uh, one, our friend Stu Holden asked the other day, if you were to give coach of the year, who would you give it to? Uh, my coach of the year, and this is hard because you mentioned, look, making the playoffs as an expansion team is is a feat. And it's, it's less of a feat when you come out like a LAFC or an Atlanta, but the soft launch type of approach that someone like Nashville took and that doesn't necessarily apply to Miami. Miami is just kind of coming into their own right now, but that's kind of what we expected from Miami. So there's a lot of there's a lot of potentials out there. And then, you know, you have the usual suspects in, in your Peter Vermeeses and uh, and Brian Schmetzers. I still think that it's Jim Curtin for what the Philadelphia Union uh, have done. They are a um, not a small market, but the way that they go about their business is very small market-esque and certainly relative to many of the other uh, uh, salaries and salary caps and the restrictions that they, uh, that they have. Uh, what he has done with less, I think, is, 
worthy of praise and worthy of being uh, coach of the year. But I think I don't think that there's a runaway coach of the year when it comes to uh, to who it's going to be. Uh, that's one. Th- I don't know, did you have a coach of the year or someone you wanted to uh, throw out there? It would probably be Jim Curtin, although I do love the job Oscar Pereira has done with. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's that's the other thing. And it's happening for the first time. And he has found the key to Orlando. And yeah, that's that's why I said I think you're good with a, a number of different choices there. Uh, but I would probably vote for uh, for Jim Curtin. And then, you know, when we talk about NYCFC uh, off the field, it's when is that stadium going to come, and how is it progressing? And it's just it's just the same. Just new day, same type of message. So much so that the president and CEO, uh, Brad Sims, came out and talked about their their vision and their stadium plans and made a big deal about talking about it, but didn't really say anything. And and because there's nothing to say until they actually get it done. And by the way, to be fair to NYCFC, we on the outside, we're not telling them anything they don't know. Yes, they want to get a stadium. Yes, getting land and a suitable type of situation in the New York City metropolitan area is more difficult than many other places around the world. But you know what? You knew that going in. And you promised that this was going to happen years ago when you came into Major League Soccer. And MLS bent over backwards to enable you. And yes, it was because of the amount of money that you were paying. But still, at some point, it's don't don't talk to us if you're not going to actually tell us anything new. We know you want to do it. We know that you're focused on it. We know that it's a priority. We know that you know that we want you to do it. Just get her done. Figure it out. All right? Because that right now, I think, more so than anything that happens on the field, to be quite honest right now, should be the focus and the intent, because nothing is going to change for that team until they figure that out. And if they can't figure it out, then you got to think about some real hard types of changes, because this is this is not this is not sustainable. All right, this is this has gotten old. And I'm not, once again, I'm not telling them anything that they don't know. All right, Mossy, anything else MLS wise? That's it. All right, we are going to take a, another break, and when we come back, we will have our Ask Alexi segment. All right, moving on. All right, we're back, and we're going to blaze through some Ask Alexi questions. You use the uh, hashtag Ask Alexi or Ask Mossy out there on all the different social media platforms and send us through those comments, questions, and concerns, and we pick a few each week. As we did this week, Mossy, what do the people want to know about this week? First up, uh, Jay Reese, 901. For the last decade, soccer has debated who is the best attacking player possibly of all time between Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi. However, where does Latan fall in the greatness discussion amongst the all-time greats? That is a good question. Um, I don't think that anybody is going to put him above either Messi or Ronaldo um, in terms of either performance or, gosh, and I know this is hard to say about someone like Zlatan, but aura, if you will. And, And there's just, there's something that's so different about Zlatan and so anti the best ever. And I think think it comes from at least a perceived vanity 
and ego and single-mindedness, if that's a word, and focus on himself. And look, that's not to say that either of those two in different ways in, in terms of Messi and Ronaldo don't also have ego and, and vanity, but it's, it's done in a very different way. And even, even Cristiano, with, with the way that he has cultivated his brand, it, 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 it's not quite at the, at the look-at-me levels of Zlatan. And I think that's what hurts him in, in this conversation. But, but yeah, I could, yeah, I could make an argument out there. I mean, everywhere he has gone, he has won. Everywhere he has gone, he has starred. Everywhere he has gone, he has done the most difficult thing uh, to do in our game, which is score goals and score goals at historic and unseen type of levels. So, I don't know, Masi. I mean, maybe I'm even talking myself out of it here. And maybe it should be much more of a conversation. Why isn't it? Well, let me just take this in a slightly different direction. As I mentioned at the top of the uh, pod, I I finally watched that uh, Barcelona documentary, uh, Take the Ball, Pass the Ball. Mm -hmm. And it's funny. It's a documentary that chronicles Pep Guardiola's four years there uh, in which they won 14 trophies. They barely, barely mention Zlatan, which is not surprising because it's ostensibly a positive documentary. So why would you bring up the one big blemish of those years, which I would say is Zlatan? And it really got me thinking about that. You know, Pep's first year, 08-09, Eto was the uh, center forward. He had a great season. They won the treble. Eto scored in the Champions League final against Manchester United, and then Pep decides after that season, the thing to do is to get rid of Eto and bring in Zlatan. And, and it doesn't work. Zlatan only lasts one season there. He moves him out. He brings in David Villa. And, and with Villa, it works again. And they end up winning the Champions League that season. And Villa scores in the Champions League final at Wembley against Manchester United. So, so why didn't Zlatan succeed where Eto and Villa did? You have these two great seasons, but sandwiched in between is this awkward Zlatan uh, season and I've seen Zlatan bring this up in interviews, not not without some justification. He he always likes to point out that he actually had a very good first half of the season, in, including scoring the winner in the Clasico against Real Madrid, and, and arrived at the winter break as one of the top scorers in La Liga, and then. Pep kind of pulled a rug out from under him tactically because he decided mid-season that season that the time was there for Messi to move into the middle and to play as more of a false nine closer to the opposition goal. And he did that, and that obviously affected Zlatan's role. And Messi ended up going nuts, scoring a zillion goals, having a great second half of the season, but that kind of hung Zlatan out to dry a little bit. And Pep and Zlatan didn't have a good relationship. Uh, and so that, that one Barcelona year has always been kind of the, the one fascinating year for me in Zlatan's career of trying to understand why that didn't work out. Because as you mentioned, everywhere else he's been, he's been the man and it's been all kind of built around him. That was the one instance where he kind of had to blend in with this great team and surrounded by Messi, Xavi, yes, and other guys. Uh, and, and it didn't quite work. So, so I don't know, food for thought there when you look back at uh, Zlatan's career. Well, you know that anytime I get asked the question about Messi or uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, I always fall on the Cristiano Ronaldo side because of the fact that he has done it at multiple places. And look, if 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 that's part of my criteria, then certainly Zlatan, you know, notwithstanding the relative failure that he that he was at Barcelona, I mean, this is a guy that has played in almost 
every single one of the uh, of the big five right uh, um, countries and been great um, almost everywhere he's gone and he deserves credit. But I, I still don't think that I could ultimately make that argument to put him above either of those two. Maybe the, and the only argument that I would, and I know this is blasphemy to people, would be the fact that he has done it at multiple places. Um, in my mind, when I'm calculating, calculating it all up, which I've just told you I do when I'm talking about Messi and Ronaldo, then I would give more value to the fact that he has done it to multiple places relative to someone like Messi. So if I had to slot him in, I would put him second. So it would be Cristiano, Zlatan, Messi. If I had to make that argument, okay, which I know people are pulling their cars over uh, or, or stopping their runs or just taking a breath right now that I would even dare to do something like that. What, you, you can't make a case, or can you make a case, Mossy, for putting him anywhere above either of those two? Uh, no, I cannot, but uh, certainly one of the great, great players of his generation for sure. Yeah, and Zlatan is an all-time great. If, if he wasn't the personality that he, that he is, well, you could argue that, that then he wouldn't be the player that he was, but if he wasn't, I, I guess a better way to phrase it is, is Zlatan, the Zlatan brand, has, does that hurt him in this assessment? No, I think it enhances it. I think he's actually... Okay. Yeah. okay. Well, I mean, but he's statue. obviously very different than those, those, those two. And if he, had, if he had gone about his brand in a different way, I was wondering if that might change people's uh, perspective. All right. Well, anyway, that's a good question, uh, Jay Reese. And I'm not sure we answered it completely there, but I think we gave you an idea of why it's so hard ultimately for people to make that, that argument. Next up is one of my favorite names we've ever had in an Ask Alexi segment. <laughs> the Tony Jabroni uh, wants to know, thoughts on this statement? Are we already considering 2022 a wash? The statement he's alluding to is Greg Berhalter in an interview on CBS when asked about the U.S. national team. He said, uh, we think we can build a team that can really perform well and potentially shock the world in 2026. He's already looking ahead to 2026. What do you make of that? Okay, so this was on on what, what what did you say it was? Where was he talking? Uh, it was CBS. I, I'm told by Alex Dowd it was uh, the lovely Kate Abdo conducting the interview. So I, I asked oh, Alex wonderful. which language was the interview in because with Kate, it could well, you never know six or right? seven different options. But apparently it was English. All right, cool. Well, uh, you know I like when uh, Greg Berhalter does uh, international media uh, and broadcast. That's good. Okay, so let's see here. Um, I, I I don't have a problem with with this statement. Uh, Greg Berhalter, like anybody else, recognizes the ramp that is 20 leading up to 2026 and how important it is going to be uh, both on the field from a competitive standpoint and off the field in terms of uh, this opportunity that summer to plant yet another flag when it comes uh, uh, when it comes to soccer. Uh, the interesting thing is, from a Greg Berhalter perspective, is how much he is actually thinking about 2026 relative to 2022. Because Greg Berhalter's job, first and foremost, is to have the best 2022. And uh, 2026, while you want to leave it in a better situation than when you took it over, and you want it to continue to evolve and get better, um, 
you're, that's not what your job is right now. That is the job of Ernie Stewart and Brian McBride to be thinking much more long-term. The other part of it is, oh, who knows if Greg Berhalter is even going to be involved. Now, maybe he doesn't care um, if he's involved or not, but we all know that it's difficult to have multiple cycles. It gets old from an international perspective. Now, to be fair to him, this cycle is going to be unlike anything else, and the amount of coaching that he is ultimately going to do is going to be uh, minimal because of the realities of uh, the world in which we live in right now. But uh, I, I don't think that saying that we can build a team that is going to perform and potentially shock the world is crazy. We're talking about sometimes teenagers in, in, in Gio Reyna. And as I said before, I looked at him much more for 2026 than 2022. He may participate in 2022. We don't know what that's going to look like. But if you extrapolate that out and everybody stays healthy, knock on wood, you would think that this generation that we are now talking about on a consistent basis is going to be that much further along and that much that much better. And so you should be bullish about 2026. But if you're Greg Berhalter, you make sure that you get the best possible team in 2022. The question for him would be, how much responsibility do you have to 2026? In that if you make a choice for what is best for 2022, but in doing so, you stunt or hurt our ability to be the best in 2026, are you doing your job? Now that's between him and, as I said, Ernie Stewart and Brian McBride to decide what, it, what, what that is. But, you know, he was hired and his contract is through 2022. And if he has any hope of having another cycle and continuing on and possibly being there in 2026, it better go well in 2022. And it better be perceived as being a phenomenal success that can only get better and should be built on. And for him, I think his ultimate goal is to come out of 2022 smelling like a rose and having everybody say, you know what? He did that in extraordinary circumstances and unprecedented and completely challenging and difficult type of, uh, of, of, uh, of cycle. Let's see what he can do now in a much more regular and normal cycle and with that group that he fostered that much further along. And, and he has to be able to say uh, the consistency is important and don't change that. We are on a, we are on a, we are, this is the process and don't change that process midstream. That's what, that's how he has to sell himself, but that's not, uh, that's not always easy. Thoughts, Just some news. Uh, the U.S. has announced their first game in forever. They'll uh, play a friendly against uh, Wales uh, in Swansea on November 12th. They're also trying to schedule a second game in Europe during this upcoming break. Um, all the articles are saying expect a mostly European-based squad. I think it should be an all-European-based squad, frankly. I mean, on the eve of the MLS playoffs, you're going to make MLS players schlep to Europe to play a friendly and then knowing that they have to spend 10 days in quarantine back. I know ideally he'd like to call in the best possible squad, but I don't know right now to me, MLS players are better off <laughs> focusing on, on that. I don't know how you, how you see that. But. And this is, this is best laid plans. So I, I, look, I hope it comes off, but you know, with the way that Europe's going right now and the continued travel restrictions and, and, and obstacles out 
that are going on right now. We saw the Australian Federation pull out of their European tour. I don't even know if this happens. So I hope it does. Um, I, I think the problem with that, Mossy, is that there are so few opportunities right now. And I think if you're a player, a domestic player right now, you're going to be worried and wanting any opportunity there is to get in front of Burhalter in whatever form that that national team uh, is, because they're going to be so few by the time he ultimately has to start making decisions and coalesce whatever that uh, whatever that group is. But I I get what you're saying right now. I'll, I'll just be happy no matter what if there's a game, if that actually is going to happen, and that is a big if. Anything else, Moss? Uh, we'll end on this. Uh, BRM Soccer. Can any other markets match what? Uh, at we are angel city is doing for the nwso in la so uh angel city the uh the newest expansion team here uh when it comes to nwsl here in los angeles so it will be my nwsl team because i live here in los angeles uh can anybody match what they are doing what they are doing um i don't think that they can match the team in terms of star power and utilizing that stars and those platforms and bull horns and uh, eyes and ears that come from stars and and fame uh, or size. Let's be honest. I mean, at this point, it's it's possibly going to be cheaper to be an owner of uh, of Angel City than actually <laughs> buy a season ticket. There are so many owners right now. Uh, and that's not a bad thing. That's a that's a good thing that so many people want to be involved. But I think that this is automatically going to be one of the teams to look at for what they are for what they are doing. Which brings me to my other point when it comes to what you're selling. There are going to be a lot of players that are going to want to come to Los Angeles to play for this team. And different players have different amounts of power and leverage. I mean, we just saw uh, Crystal Dunn who uh, had made it very, very clear that she wanted to be in Portland because that's where her husband is. Her husband, for those that don't know, is the Portland head trainer uh, for the Thorns, and she made it very, very clear. And it got to a point, obviously, where her her now former team, uh, the Courage, uh, in North Carolina, knew that they were going to have to act. And so they ended up doing a three-way trade trade where Crystal Dunn went through the rain and then ultimately got her wish and got to the place that she wanted to be with the Thorns. Well, there are going to be players out there that are going to say in no uncertain terms, I want to be in Los Angeles. That's where I want to live. That's where I want to play. I want to play for this ownership group or that's where my family is or that from a lifestyle perspective, that's what I want. And some of them are going to be able to leverage that and, and use the power that they have to make that happen and others won't. What I, what I would caution against is just because you have a lot of famous people and big names uh, and attention, and there's going to be plenty of attention when it comes to this team, and they'll be written up and they will have marketing uh, advantages that others won't, doesn't mean that when the whistle blows that they are automatically going to be the best team. And that's where the the, the competition might might be different. So there will be teams that aren't going to make as much noise. But when that whistle blows, we'll bring as much, if not more, when it comes to the uh, the competitive side on the field. 
Mossy, anything uh, about that or anything else that we've talked about here in Ask Alexa? No, that's it. Uh, all right, we're going to take a real quick break. And when we come back, the end of our show, you know it, uh, one for the road. I've got a quick story uh, uh, about the, uh, the history of MLS Cups. Don't go away. All right, we're back. Time for the end of our show. And at the end of each and every show, we give you our one for the road. This one, uh, for those that don't know, this past week was the anniversary of the very first MLS Cup. It occurred back in 1996. It featured the uh, Los Angeles Galaxy against DC United. It was held at what is old Foxborough Stadium in Foxborough, Massachusetts, now the site of Gillette Stadium. But back then, both the uh, local team, which would, would have been my team, the New England Revolution, and obviously the Patriots both played at Foxborough Stadium. And we, and it's a long history when it comes to soccer for Foxborough Stadium. As I said, back in uh, 1996, I was playing for the Los Angeles, not the Los Angeles, gosh, I'm in Los Angeles, but playing for the New England Revolution. And we had bombed out. We had not even made the playoffs. Uh, and so there was no chance of me actually getting on the field from a playing perspective. But I found my way into the festivities of MLS Cup 1996 in the form of playing the national anthem. Uh, this is something that I had done and have done, I don't know how many times, countless times, whether it's for... Uh, basketball games or baseball games or soccer games. I even played the national anthem before a national team game in at Cal State Fullerton once and then uh, took off my guitar and took off my sweatsuits and there and there I was and went out and ran, a, uh, ran around for the uh, U.S. men's national team. So this is something that I had done uh, many, many times. Uh, so I was used to it. For those that don't know, there was a monsoon that happened uh, before the game and there was lightning going on. Uh, I was initially going to be plugged in and they ended up bringing out two microphones. And the last thing that they said to me before I went out there is don't touch either of the microphones because we don't want you to get electrocuted, <laughs> which would have been some great entertainment. But uh, thankfully, I completed the national anthem, drenched uh, and didn't touch the microphone and therefore was not electrocuted. This all uh, came about this past week as Major League Soccer celebrated this 25th uh, year by celebrating the anniversary of MLS uh, Cup. Back then, we did it at a much earlier date than we do it than we do it now. My attire was was called in for scrutiny because they uh, they replayed the actual broadcast. It happened on ABC, and I was interviewed uh, during it. Came on with Roger Twibel in the opening, um, and they showed my performance of the national anthem, and it was in full. 90s garb in that the long hair and the goatee, earrings, necklaces, uh, bracelets, rings, flannel, uh, thermal long uh, underwear uh, up top, all the typical 90s grunge type of accoutrement when it comes uh, to what you would what you would associate with that that time. And it seems like yesterday for me, and it doesn't seem that strange for me, even though I've changed on the outside, uh, but for a lot of people, it was a jar, a, a jarring type of moment and a jar to their system when they saw this 90s version 
um, and the epitome of a 90s type of grunge look on their screens. And they hadn't seen it in a long time. For some people, it was a throwback and uh, it, it reminded them of what they once were or what they once lived through. And for others uh, that are much younger, it was a jarring example of how ridiculous the 90s, uh, the 90s were. Uh, for me, it was a trip down memory lane and uh, a moment in time when we had gotten to the end of the first year and it was a celebration that there isn't is going to be a second uh, a second year. It was a privilege and pleasure to be a part of that uh, game in a small way on the broadcast and uh, and to sing the national anthem of a country that I love uh, and a country that I believe is the greatest country in the world and to have that honor and that moment to be able to do that. Each and every time that I do it, it, uh, it warms the cockles of my red-headed heart. And uh, it certainly did uh, on that day. We have since grown by leaps and bounds. You will not see me anywhere close to singing the national anthem. Uh, they have much bigger and much more high-profile type of artists when it comes to that, including uh, even a few years later, I remember being uh, watching Christina Aguila uh, Aguilera. Uh, that's her name, right? Christina Aguilera. Aguilera, right? Is it Aguilera or Aguilar? Mossy. Aguilera, yes. Christina Aguilera, who then went on to much bigger Her and Britney Spears and at one point things. in the 90s had very much kind of a Messi and Ronaldo sort of rivalry as to who was that great female pop star. With Britney, right? Correct, yeah. Got it, got it. God, that sounds so old. All right, listen, that's enough for today. Thank you so much for listening. I know we, we, we continue to go long, but we got so much to talk about. And it's 2020. What's time, right? Um, I hope you're all staying safe and sane. Mossy, anything before we go? That's it. All right. Uh, thank you, as always, for downloading and subscribing and reviewing uh, and uh, uh, just being a part of this uh, of this podcast uh, that we do. We don't take it for granted. Uh, we are incredibly fortunate to be able to do what we do. Uh, and we thank you for listening and for watching each and every week. We will be back again next week with another edition of the State of the Union. And until then... Size the day. Yeah.